Welcome to another episode in Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today we have a very accomplished guest in Dr. Kelly Starrett, co-founder, head coach, and physical therapist, chief tinkerer, and movement optimist. Kelly Starrett, DPT, is a coach, a physical therapist, author, and speaker. Along with his wife, Juliet, Kelly is co-founder of The Ready State. The Ready State began as Mobility WAD in 2008 and has gone on to revolutionize the field of performance therapy and self-care. Kelly received his Doctorate of Physical Therapy in 2007 from Samuel Merritt College in Oakland, California. Kelly's clients includes professional athletes in the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball. He also works with Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record-holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit Games medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. Kelly is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers Becoming a Supple Leopard, as well as three other books. Kelly and his work have been featured on 60 Minutes, The View, The Joe Rogan Experience, CBS Sports, Outside Magazine, Men's Health, Men's Journal, and dozens of other books, magazines, and podcasts, including Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Body and Tools of the Titans. On top of co-founding The Ready State, Kelly and Juliet also started San Francisco CrossFit and Stand Up Kids together. Founded in 2005, San Francisco CrossFit was the 21st CrossFit affiliate in the world. And Stand Up Kids is a nonprofit dedicated to combating kids' sedentary lifestyles by bringing standing and moving desks to low-income public schools. To date, Stand Up Kids has converted 95,000 kids from sitting to standing. In his athletic career, Kelly paddled whitewater slalom canoe on the U.S. canoe and kayak teams. He led the men's whitewater rafting team to two national titles and competed in two world championships. In his free time, K-Star, as he is known, likes to spend time with his wife, Juliet, and two daughters, Georgia and Caroline. Welcome to the program, Kelly. I, I really appreciate your time today. I know you're a very busy man, and I'm honored that you took time uh, to talk with me today. Oh, absolutely, and let's be honest, anyone today working is busy. <laughs> like <laughs> We've had to stop using that as an excuse. Well, I think you're right on that. Now, you have been on so many podcasts, including the big ones, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, to just name a few. You've authored multiple books and written thousands of blogs, not to mention YouTube videos. So today, let's go in a little different direction. Let's focus on your journey in relation to leadership. So to start with, you grew up in Germany and were raised by a single mom. So what was important about those early experiences that have helped shape who you are today? Uh, I love it. I'm I'm so glad not to talk about shoulder pain, or stretching <laughs> hamstrings. You know, um, th it's interesting. You know, I, I just turned 46. Um, my wife and I, you know, who, my wife is my business partner, and and sometimes we ask ourselves like, how how do we end up here? How do we take risks? How do we feel comfortable? Sort of, you know, putting a target on our back sometimes, proverbially, or 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 really, you know, pulling an agenda or inspiring, you know, and, and helping and nurturing other businesses. And, and I think one of the interesting things around uh, being a young kid is that my mother was actually a professor in Germany. And um, I spent a long time as a single child in the back of her packed lecture halls, watching my mom lecture. And so 
you know, teaching, I think, and understanding and communicating has been, you know, part of my DNA. And, and I would be remiss to say that my mom's PhD was in metacognition. And um, so understanding sort of learning processes and communication was, as has been part of the, the language forever. And I, that's interesting is that I also grew up around a lot of instructors. And so my own experience being a young athlete in Europe, kayaking and skiing is that I was always around very, very technical instruction around superstars in their respective sports. In fact, I got my first job really teaching adults how to whitewater kayak when I was 14. So I feel like I've been in some kind of kayaking, teaching leadership role for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. And that, frankly, just be able to model my mother, you know? Yeah, that's, well, what a great role model, and that's uh, that's awesome. And you were also a member of the U.S. canoeing and kayaking team and have two world championships under your belt. What can we learn from that caliber of, of that athletic performance and being a member of such an elite team in relation to leadership as well? Well, it's funny you bring that up because I feel uh, like that happened another lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, What's interesting, though, is that was one of my first experiences being a product of a system. And um, at the time, the model was paddle more, train more. And that ended up with a really pretty severe overuse injury for myself, where my right hand went numb. And I definitely had some kind of brachial plexus injury, traction injury, something going on. I was a poor breather. I'm sure I had no internal rotation in my shoulder. But it was a classic use of... You know, I had all the signs and symptoms prior to like a, a nervous system injury, but I just ignored it because that was what always happened. And when I when I became injured and couldn't paddle, and that was how I defined I was actually injured, I couldn't actually paddle anymore, was when I looked around, everyone said, oh, yeah, this we knew this would happen. This always happens. And I was like, what do you mean? This is this is a normal expression of the system. Like you knew that, that you know, and they were like, yeah, it happens all the time. You train really hard, you break, you go back off and hopefully you can get a little further. And and I started looking around and all the women on the team had all had shoulder surgery, reconstructive surgery. And I, I was like, so you knew that all these women were going to have shoulder reconstructive surgery. And they were like, well, not really, but I guess, yes. And I was like, so, you know, are, could we prevent any of this? Or is this just the cost? Is, this, is sport circus? And that was really where I began to realize that, you know, sport is so intrinsic to who we are as human beings and, and culturally we compete. We like to watch people compete. And that was the first time where I became aware, one, is that there's no idealized state of readiness for human beings. That, you know, we can say here are our best practices, but where the rubber hits the road really is different in terms of managing interpersonal relationships and stress and sleep and travel and nutrition. And there are so many components to trying to create a robust anti-fragile human that sometimes we, we're, we're presented with this really idealistic picture of what, what is possible. And yet we don't really talk about the, um, the granularity of, of what really happens from day to day. And you know, what, what I started to realize is that, wow, sport really gives us a chance to test our concept at the highest level, like Formula One. But if we're going to transcend the notion of sport, that sport is about self-actualization and cultural self-actualization. And for us, it has become about a place to really understand what best practices are and then take those principles back. So, you know, a lot of the things that we advocate for around a biopsychosocial approach to health and performance are really 
the tenets of creating a stable, well-loved, supported athlete so that they can go out and compete. And on the flip side of that are saying, what are the best practices around nutrition and sleep and warm up and cool down and movements so that we can really create an opportunity where the athlete can, can perform and we can take those lessons back to our teenage selves or our elderly, or we can kind of, otherwise sport is just circus. And I really felt like, oh, I was, I was just a gladiator who had been sacrificed to the lions because that was our old model. And so that really helped me be comfortable, one, taking risks and being really, un, un, you know, really comfortable with an uncertain future. And secondarily, it really codified that we are really robust people in complicated, complex lives. And that doesn't mean that it's so complex or so complicated. We can't begin to untug at that Gordian now a little bit. Yeah, it almost begs the question of, of when you have that level of, of competition and you do get injured and you have to fight through that adversity and, and get yourself back, it almost makes you wonder if people reach a higher level having had to go through that than someone who went through the entire process without having those struggles. Uh, from the mental perspective, at least physically, I think it's a whole different picture. But mentally, uh, do you gain something from those uh, adverse uh, uh, positions you're put into, and and down the road lead to um, a greater ability to accomplish bigger things? I think that's there is something really to be to be had there, and I think you know if you you know my I think as I can thank my mother for this going back to this, but you know as a learner, I'm definitely I'm into, I'm a gestaltist learner. I need to understand how systems interrelate, how, what the big picture is. And so once I have context, then I really begin to understand. And I think if you pan back for a second and really understand, you know, stress is stress, whether that's a difficult relationship with a, in a workplace with a boss or a coworker, uh, having a difficult conversation with a loved one or a friend or lining up at the World Cup your brain doesn't perceive that as any different. And ultimately, you know, a physical practice is really the root of, you know, of who we are as human beings, whether we want to admit that or not. And, and clearly we don't have to rise to the, you know, what I would almost say is the dysfunctional level of elite athleticism. I mean, I don't know if that's a healthy pursuit, right. psycho-emotionally or even physically, but, you know, you know, why do we have a nervous system in the first place to, you know, perceive change in our environment, to move around? And, you know, I think in sport we and in physical practice and experience, there is really a possibility of self-understanding. And, and that at that micro level of really understanding what your processes are and your fear and how you, how do you get comfortable being uncomfortable really can be expanded well to, Hey, this is why I jump into a yoga class. This is why this is the promise of Pilates is to, is to be vulnerable and to expose capacities and abilities that maybe, you know, are nascent or have never been developed. And that's, that's really where we have an opportunity to, again, take the lessons that we're learning in these high performance environments and, and scaling them backwards. Otherwise, you know, let's just pretend that we're not all going to be 110 years old with modern medicine and it doesn't matter. And we're going to replace all the discs and replace all the hips and we'll just accept a certain level of disability and we won't be able to get off the floor and that's fine. Or we can really say that, hey, we're learning a lot now because of the internet and the connected age and the work of our masters before us, certainly Sarman, you know, at all, you know, you know, you know, I reference Mulligan and Maitland all the time. And, you know, I, I think what we, if we connect the knots, we can see that 
there's been some really excellent and critical thinking about what the human being is capable of and but distilling those practices back so that they actually do make more robust people so that they can be you know better husbands better wives better better you know leaders you know it's it's about sustainability and and if i'm working in a space and i get to work in high performance environments which aren't sport i'm talking about you know big corporations and and part of the magic is saying hey look you have these have to we have to be sustainable we need to learn how to turn off as much as we're learning how to turn on we need to you know you're only going to be good to me and good to the organization if you still feel motivated and stoked and not burned out and that's the same conversation we're having with our athletes yeah that's that's fascinating you were an early adopter of crossfit and started one of the first crossfit crossfit gyms in the nation so what was it that you saw that others missed and for you to jump all in at that time it's a, it's a really interesting question because uh, I discovered CrossFit the, in my first semester of physio school back in 2004. And, um, you know, what I saw was suddenly that, um, you know, I was already a national champion and already been injured and I was already, I thought I was a pretty good athlete. And I discovered that I, I wasn't competent in some of the basic skills and language of, of modern strength conditioning. I wasn't very good at Olympic lifting. I didn't really understand powerlifting very well. Gymnastics was sort of a, something that we always said that I wish that I had done as a child, right? And then I turned out I wasn't a very skilled runner. I wasn't, you know, I didn't understand sort of, you know, body weight control. And what really came down to is that I had discovered that I wasn't very skilled and I wasn't very strong and that I had sort of stumbled on to being a decent mover because early on I was exposed to lots and lots of different sports growing up as a kid. You know, we played everything and, you know, and, and we actually valued it. I mean, amongst my friends, it was the, the, the kid who could, you know, do three sports in one day and then ride their bike, you know, to Austria to get chocolate. That was what we, we really valued as the greatest athlete amongst us with very little formal movement training. And suddenly I had discovered this this really crystalline language of formal movement instruction around the tenets and the basis of any classical strength and conditioning program. And it was really different than what I was learning in physical therapy school. And what I was learning in as a first year physio at an excellent school with really bright, talented instructors um, was that we, physical therapy was almost a parallel language of human function. And that you had to be clever enough to sort of reconcile what we were teaching in classical physical therapy education, graduate education with what was really happening in the halls, in the sport labs, in the, and it, they were really different. And um, you know, I remember thinking, boy, here's this thing that's really helping me understand what's going on. So I, I started a CrossFit gym while I was in physio school, which I don't recommend to anyone. And, um, you know, because I was coaching six days a week and balancing uh, a newborn and uh, my wife was an attorney and I had a full-time job okay. and that was a lot. Yeah. Well, I remember sitting in a class about uh, burnout and feeling like I understand burnout I'm burned out right now. And, um, but you know, what was really amazing was the more people that came through when I took this formal movement language, which was really sort of the building blocks of hip flexion and dorsiflexion and, and stabilization and cardiorespiratory demand under tension. And, and 
and began to explore that, it made it really easy for me to understand movement limitations, especially when I had Norkin and White in front of me and American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and what we thought were normative expressions of movement beyond what is normal limits, beyond, hey, this athlete, this person in front of me doesn't have pain with this problem, so it's not gonna be on my problem list. And that really began to change my brain around how much of my practice was really gonna be geared towards, hey, you're independent and you're good, to why aren't we restoring and really tapping into your full potential physically? And, and those are really, really radically different languages until I was sort of able to synthesize them. And so that was really what kind of caught my attention and that this formal movement practice, being able to understand Pilates and gymnastics and yoga suddenly made my physio practice really, really clear and easy to understand, right? And especially since the biopsychosocial components of stress and sleep and nutrition and hydration and feeling supported were the tenets of good athletic performance, uh, you know, and those were the same conversations I was needing to have around chronic pain. So why do you use the term physio much more than, uh, that's more of a European way to describe our, or, or maybe other parts of the world, uh, physiotherapy as opposed to physical therapy. Why do you choose to use the word physio? Uh, you know, maybe it's, um, I have a lot, I work in a lot of, inter, you know, we have uh, instructors and teach all over the planet. And sometimes that maybe that's an affect that allows me to communicate with all of the Australian uh, physical therapists or, you know, um, you know, and, and also I feel like, and this may be an unpopular thing is that a lot of times maybe secretly the physio is a, is a language to, to separate and couple out what I feel like is a difference in how we treat and approach a little bit, because I'll tell you, you know, sometimes, you know, I don't think as a field, we have tapped into the full promise of physical therapy yet so maybe maybe that's an unconscious bias on my part that you picked up yeah and what kind of student were you uh, uh did you push the conventional wisdom with the faculty when you were in school with your uh, crossfit uh, philosophy and what you were experiencing in that realm well you know what was really great um early on is that i had my um in my advisor you know she, my first advisor me, she said, so what do you want to do with all this? And I kind of told her this, what exactly what I'm doing. She, she kind of read me the riot act and she said, you don't know what, you know, you don't know what you want to do. And she kind of, and I was like, Oh, I need to keep my cards close to my chest, you know? And, uh, and I was like, okay, I appreciate that. And I was an adult. I was much older, you know, physical therapy student at the time. But um, what I realized was that um, in school um, sort of that there, I was exposed to, you know, uh, you know, the World Center for PNF at Kaiser Vallejo, those are my daily instructors. I had, you know, we had Herrick and the NDT folks. And, you know, I had uh, some really incredible manual therapists, uh, advanced maintenance people, you know, those are my daily instructors. And what I realized was that, well, I was getting the opportunity, and, and maybe this is because I was a little bit older, to be versed in really disparate fields like wound care and pediatrics and you know, you know, because of my school had such good relationships with UCSF and some of the other schools around, you know, I really felt like I got, got to sample so much. And I really did appreciate that ultimately there would be aspects of, you know, I think the most important lectures I ever had were on pain science, even though, you know, classically I wanted, I thought I wanted to go into, you know, human performance, you know, not necessarily sports physical therapy, but we'll call it human performance. And, 
you know, I, there was a, uh, a student who uh, she and I competed for best grades in, in the school. Right. And I, I, after my first semester, I knew I was gonna have a baby. And I just basically was like, you're going to have the crown. And I told my professors sometimes in anatomy, I'm going to study for a B and that's, you're just gonna have to be good with that because, you know, that's, that's going to respect my time and let me not die. And at the same time, you know, um, I, I, I was given a, what I think is a really excellent physical therapy education, but I did have to reconcile sort of classic physical therapy education with what I knew to be the truth and reality of how our best athletes and best sports organizations were, were performing. So to the extent I was definitely black sheep-ish, but I was an excellent student. And I, for example, I never had to go back and retake a practical because I, I, I had been coaching and teaching other people my whole life. So I, I felt like that was what was most important. Isn't that kind of the definition of an entrepreneur or someone who has reached a very high level of excellence uh, being told uh, no, or you're crazy, or you can't do this? Uh, you know, I certainly uh, felt that. And, I, you know, the world has shifted in this time. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. There was no I mean, Facebook is, was, was, you know, emergent at the time. There was no YouTube. And so, you know, the, I think, I think now about all the young physical therapists are coming out and have an incredible community and support and are able to work in sort of less traditional settings than our classic inpatient or classic orthopedic outpatient settings. And it's a lot easier for them because there's a roadmap and a template and people have done a lot of tamping down the tall grass so they can see. So if you went back in time and worked at an independent, or you started an independent physical therapy practice, that was a monumental task. To, you know, we, there's a bunch of us who have never opted into the traditional insurance model. We put our, put our livelihoods on the line. It's fee for service. Someone pays us a, a blank fee and they get a whole hour of time and it's much time and, and appropriate physio plus, you know, lots and lots of texts and emails and follow-ups. And, and um, you know, I think that is only possible now because of the work that was done by this first generation physical therapist. So um, on the one hand, I can really appreciate they were saying you're crazy because we, they didn't, they couldn't see what I could see. They didn't have the perspective and they had come from a different tradition and, and that's okay. It's okay to have that dissonance within. And this was, my instructors were the, still the same people who were fighting for legitimacy of physical therapy to move beyond, you know, the hydrocolator and tens, you know, and really saying that, Hey, you know, diathermy isn't getting us forward as a profession. We're actually a movement profession. So how do we reconcile evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence with, who we are and what's possible in the world. And that's going to sometimes create, you know, a dynamic tug. I think if, you, if I was a, phys, a physical therapy student today, I would have less resistance. And yet I had a whole bunch of really incredible instructors who were like, said, go see, go figure it out. Yeah. You know, in relation to that, from my observation, you have a fresh approach to mobility and conditioning and, and aren't afraid to ruffle the feathers of kind of the status quo. So what gives you the confidence to push your philosophy and experience out to the masses? Well, I think, I think um, in, that, in that statement is sort of a type one error. It doesn't feel like I'm trying to ruffle feathers and it doesn't feel like I'm trying to change the paradigm. We're trying to be transparent in the way that we think an approach that works, that's a systems-based approach. And we, what we've done is, what I've done is try to create a model for really trying to understand the complexity of human movement and function within the context of actual humans. 
And if you can show me a better way, we will integrate that into our model. So what we have is a model that we then try to break. And we take that model around to as many different sports and conditions as you can imagine. And we try to challenge the robustness of the model. And what has been different is that we have this set of tools that allows us to be deeply transparent in how we teach and how we practice and what we think and who is responsible for what. For example, you know, we're going to have to have a different conversation in this country about who's responsible for pain. So traditionally in movement, fitness, movement, when we had pain, we said, oh, that's a, that's a medical problem. Well, that may be a medical problem until you realize that everyone is working out with pain. And I go to a high school and I ask kids, if, you know, 100 kids to raise their hand who's in pain and 90% of them raise their hand. And so what we realized is that maybe pain is not what we thought it was and who is responsible because if someone has pain in their knee after running, are they really going to go see a physical therapist or are they going to just pretend like it's not there and try to treat and self-medicate and WebMD? And, and so what we've come to believe is that we need to change who is responsible for what. And for us, that ends up being that the coach, the trainer ends up being for us the sort of combat medic. And what we've defined based on the Nagy model is how do you know you're injured? Well, you can't occupy in your old society, can't do your job, can't perform your role, you know, on the, on the team, or you have some clear mechanism of injury, right? You have a, you know, there's a bone sticking out of your leg or you heard a pop or snap and what we're trying to do, or you've got you know, red flags. And what we're trying to do is raise the bar and say, Hey, look, maybe physical therapy isn't the best place to being addressed movement dysfunction. Right. And, and I think physical therapists even have a hard time saying, well, there's no such thing as movement dysfunction. Why? Because it's not a pain related problem that they can treat. And yet on the performance side, what we un unequivocally see is that poor positioning, while may not be pain related, absolutely relates to decrease in function and output. So we might as well synthesize this and have a have a, an honest conversation about who's responsible for what. And that feels like we're doing the honest work. And in a way that's responsible and science-based and research-based, because, you know, we haven't done anything radical except say who's responsible for what. So if you go see a Maitland-trained therapist and they mobilize the hip, I mean, look at the intercession research versus the intracession change research. And you're going to see that we've, we've got to change how physical therapy potentially is interacting with traditional sports medicine or traditional sort of sports places so do you think your message is being heard do you see positive changes that you're uh, that give you confidence for the future in that uh, uh, area of pain and, and who's responsible well let me ask you <laughs> you know <laughs> you know you know um, I think one of the interesting things here is you know uh, we are you know I started teaching a course on better movement and self-care back in 2008. You know, I'd already owned a gym for three years. And um, so here I am, it's, it's 2019, almost 2020. And we either, there's some dissonance here because either I'm a great charlatan and we have managed to fool tens of thousands of athletes, every branch of the government, countless professional teams, all of the physical therapists and doctors, and, or we're getting something right in that the world, suddenly there was a tide shift around hey, who is responsible for their musculoskeletal care and health? You know, and when we pan back and start to look at the, the injury data on ACL injuries or low back pain re reported or fall risk in the elderly, I mean, rates of diabetes, you know, wh what are we going to do? 
we have a choice. We're either going to say, hey, we think we can improve this ball by changing how kids are interacting in the classroom. But, you know, I think it's, it's different, you know, at this point, you know, that if you go out to set out to change the world, that's a mistake. If you set out to change your community and be of service to your family, a service to the athletes you work with, service to the, the people you interact with, that then you can really see test and retest and share an observable, measurable, repeatable model that's that's founded in, in good and sensible research and science. Well, let's dig into that a little bit further. You know, you work with the most elite clientele list that, you know, probably any PT would give their right arm to work with. I'm talking Navy SEALs, elite armed forces, athletes from the NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. So do they seek you out because you are that good? Or are you just a master marketer who knows how to promote your skills? Well, you know, I, I think it's a good question. And, um, you know, what I can say is that we don't market to those people. We don't really do, you know, we've now realized that, boy, there's a lot of competition. And we, you know, my, my wife is trained as an attorney and I'm trained as a physical therapist. And I don't know if you remember physical therapy school, but they did not talk about internet marketing in physical therapy school or funnels or you know customer service retention or, or business you know, or, or anything yeah you know so on the one hand you know i think we're we are at a you know to answer the fundamental question no we never knock on doors people are asking us you know to come help them solve this set of problems and every time you know we go in we always are looking at the environment and saying you know where can we make your life easier right with with the skill set and the knowledge that we have and you know sir francis bacon 101 is you know is pattern recognition through induction and every time i see you know 10,000 soldiers or every time we get to work with an organization that is transparent about the problems they have you know we're able to have, because we've walked around the elephant once or twice we can understand how the system interacts and the other magic here is that I'm not just a physical therapist. I am a strength and conditioning coach who's really good at coaching high level movement where that running, swimming, Olympic lifting, gymnastics, like because that that was part of the skill set that I was interested in and have continued to develop for over a decade. But, you know, sometimes I'll sit at the table of a professional organization and the physical therapists are on one side and the coaches and 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 training staff is on the other side and they're not even able to have a conversation and because we're physical therapist coaches we really can begin to see where the venn diagram overlaps and help people understand hey the coaches can do a lot of your lifting and clear up your plate so you can get a lot done so you know uh, dude do you think you call up joe rogan or tim ferris and say can i be on your podcast or do you you know I mean, our Supple Leopard is an interesting book. You know, we just crested a half million books. Yeah, the success That's, of that is incredible. So, you know, people forget that it's not about press and guess. You know, it's not, a, it's not about that. The first, first half of the book is movement theory. Movement theory based on what? A classical physical therapy education and then trying to synthesize what I knew, how that integrated around how joints and tissues work, you know, how fascia interacts with the system along with you know, what are best practices across elite sports and performance? And, and if you come out of a traditional physical therapy experience and you drop in, it's sometimes difficult to understand what, what you're understanding, what you're seeing. And I, I appreciate that. And so the, the model and the remedy for that is to continue to be transparent. 
we have more and more physical therapists who continue to come to our course. At our gym, we have five physical therapists. Some of them are residency trained orthopedic clinical specialists. I mean, you know, if there was large dissonance in their life between what they were learning at, you know, this elite Kaiser postdoc education and teaching people to squat, that would have come up. So what drives you to influence those in your field of, of expertise through your books, blogs, social media, and other modes of communication? Well, you know, we are very fortunate that I'm very fortunate. The one is I have, my wife is a savage CEO and she runs a, you know, a very big complex system between our courses. And, you know, it's not just a social media piece, the, the amount of uh, work we do to try to support organizations who are trying to get ahead on musculoskeletal care. You know, I'm talking about the NYPD, you know, that's an organization of 50,000 people. You know, where are you going to become in? Is it, is it, you know, dead bugs for everyone? Is it clamshells? I, you know, I think you're going to miss, you know, a lot of people potentially with that, that language, right? And, you know, what I get to do, what I dream to do, like there is the work that I get to do on a daily basis is what, I mean, there is no edge, no border between my personal life, professional life, what my friends do. I just went on a big you know, mountain bike ride in Moab. And I had three of the best coaches on the planet that I know with me. And what do you think we did riding for seven hours a day? All we did was nerd out about, you know, all of this. And so, you know, what I, what I think is, you know, what drives me is that I love this stuff. And I love when we can see people go out into their community and make, become the, the loci of change the nexus, that loose network power. And what we've seen is, man, we, we really are able to improve the ball and, you know, in, in demonstrated ways where we save organizations lots of money, whether it's, you know, the CIA or, you know, it's the Navy, you know, we, we track a lot of the things that we get to see because we have to show ROI on what we're talking about. And speaking of change, it seems that you love to teach others and coach people to reach their potential. What's the key to leading people and influencing them to change? Because let's be honest, people, they love to resist change. Oh, yeah. You know, one of our good friends is um, founded a, an incredible nutrition company called Precision Nutrition. And if you've taken John Berardi's, they're probably doing the best at educating non-RDs in the tenets of nutrition science, but really what they have done is become experts in the, in the science of behavior change. So, you know, if you are a physical therapist, you are absolutely engrossed in the game of changing, you know, behavior and, you know, looking at barriers to adherence, how do we, you know, engage? And, and so, you know, one of the things that I think are around behavior change is that we have learned the lesson that it's much more useful to point positive to be aspirational, to show people, if we, if we warn people about like, you know, fear mongering and back pain and tech snack, that doesn't really change the behavior. You know, you've got to give people reasons to change. And that reason to change is that they actually can throw more pitches. They can lift more weight. They can pick up their kids pain-free. They can manage their degenerative hip, you know, you know, pathology themselves. And so when, when you empower the people with the tools, you know, it comes back to what I always say about athletes. Athletes will always do what works and they will stop doing what doesn't work. And so if you really think you have a great model, drop it in to, a, you know, the NFL or a major league baseball team or a high school, 
you know, volleyball team. And I'll show you how sticky and how good it is because it works and helps those athletes meet their goals, whatever that is. So I think it helps when we, we point positive and we talk about what's working for us and what really hasn't worked. And I think is really, frankly, a tenant of physical therapy on the internet right now, particularly Twitter, is people like to talk about what they think doesn't work. And yet at the same time, they don't ever promote what they're doing. They're not transparent in how they treat. They don't even show the environments in which they're treating, you know, or their work or their associations or their better models. They're just saying that that doesn't work. And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't help anyone. Yeah, well, the, the formula for learning and growing is first to be open to new and different ideas and to listen and see what other people have to say. And, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, your way uh, can be tweaked or changed or even totally uh, redone. So I think, uh, I think we have to be open to, to different ideas and, and realize oh, yeah. we don't have all the answers. And, you know, I'll, I'll, let me double down on that and say, um, you know, one model isn't going to work for everyone because... You know, we need different teachers more roads lead to Rome. You know, I work in uh, Olympic lifting, for example, and I know personally five or six really excellent Olympic lifting coaches who all have different methodologies and different, different sort of principles. The underlying movement of the person is going to be the same, but how you get there, you know, the relationships, the model of communication, it all matters. And so on, there is there can never be one way because we actually can't count or capture everyone with that single model or single method of communication so what we want to do again i mean buckminster fuller has this idea of mutually accommodating systems so if i read any of the master's work or any people who are doing really great work you know what you'll see is that i we have a different way different set of tools perhaps and maybe even a different way of describing a phenomenon but if there's dissonance or overlap, someone has a problem in their principles around how they think the human works. And instead of that being point of contention, we should be interested there. Like those, those pieces of where something is not working gives us an opportunity to understand more completely and try to unravel, you know, you know, the, the mystery of how human beings exist and how we interact with our environments and what is sustainable. Because, you know, if we, if we pan back for a second, the human brain is the most complicated structure in the known universe. I mean, this is unequivocal thinking and it's attached to a body that is really remarkable. And so, you know, it's, we think that we're going, it's, you know, doing research and truly understand this, you know, Ken Burns, when you go into his, um, his editing suite, he has a neon sign in there for all of his staff that says it's complicated. And let's just remind ourselves for a second, it's complicated and a lot of roads lead to Rome. Absolutely. Yeah. And how are you always so amped up? Uh, you know, your passion just pours out of you. Where does it come from? Uh, because I, I am obsessed. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> Do you ever get I, tired? I, oh, you know, for, for sure, for sure. But uh, I'll tell you, um, you know, one of the things that they said a long time ago that uh, was said to me is if you want to go far, go by yourself. Or if you want to, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. And if you want to go far, go with friends. And I have the most incredible, talented physical therapist coaches around me who, you know, we are pushing what we each, how we think, how we problem solve. And it's really the, you know, the tribe that we all belong in. So I feel deeply supported, and deeply seen by my friends who are working on the same sets of problems I am, but maybe those, those friends are in pelvic floor health, or maybe those friends are in chronic pain. And what we're really trying to do is figure out, you know, where they overlap. And, and 
part of if you're going to start your own business and be responsible for you know eating what you kill you know you're going to have to be stoked and you're going to have to be obsessed yeah and i think you hit it right on the head i think that we all perform better we all reach higher levels of excellence we we just do better when we're willing to collaborate we're willing to be part of a team it's 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 never all about you and if it is it, it doesn't go be. very far it can't be and, and there's so much to learn i mean you know one of the at our gym i have some just extraordinary coaches some of them have to be physical therapists and some of them just happen to be extraordinary coaches and the amount of continuing education we all do and the amount of talking and thinking and critical thinking and assessment that we do is really, I think it's profound. And I think it's the, it's exactly the same thing that's going on at Exos. It's the same thing going on in, in people who are saying, hey, look, this model of what physical therapy is pretty remarkable, but there's, you know, further places where we can take this thing. And that's, it's going to have some growing pains and it's going to make some people uncomfortable, but we feel like it's morally and ethically the right thing to do. So speaking of leadership, let's talk about stand-up kids. I'm, I'm so impressed with this. Uh, first, explain to our listeners what stand-up kids is, and then how do you convince a principal, Tracy Smith, I think her name was, to convert her entire school to being the first all-stand-up desk school in the world? Well, in 20, you know, one of the things that, again, let me just come back to sport. So there was, maybe it was... Um, uh, in 2010, I did a talk at Google because Google was beginning to really see and struggle with changes in the environment around the human. People were spending a lot more time in sedentary positions. Back pain was starting to cost the organization a ton. And what they saw was that people were not feeling good. We saw a lot of absenteeism and even presenteeism. And so I was invited to come to the Google campus and talk about sort of environmental health, right? How, how can we think about changing our environment. And, and there are, you know, PhDs at Cal, Galen Krantz has written a book about sort of the history of the chair and understanding first and foremost, you know, what is, what is sort of our native intelligence around movement? Where did, you know, why are we struggling to get up and down off the ground, you know, and, and um, you know, it, is sitting a problem or is it not moving as a problem? Is, you know, what, what, what are the issues? So where, where can we begin to control this? And, and so I was working with a football team and they were having problems with, there was this, a division one um, college team. They are having problems with some hip extension and some end range shoulder flexion. And, and I said, Hey, you know, they just felt like they couldn't get ahead with some of these kids. And I said, Hey, just do some self-reporting about how much time the kids are spent in chairs, playing video games and sitting and studying. And it turned out to be the bulk of their day. And so what we saw was, Oh, just adaptation that these young kids growing athletes were basically playing football. Then, couldn't achieve the positions because there was something in their environment that was limiting them. And then fast forward to Google. And then all of a sudden, Julie, I looked around and said, man, we've been talking to a lot of people about public health issues. And why aren't we applying that same principle to our kids? And at the same time, we had written um, a, a book on running around just restoring some of the native requirements for running effectively. And um, one of the things we noticed is that about halfway through the first grade, kids started heel striking. And so they were all runners, all sprinters. They all run like Usain Bolt, right? And then halfway through the first grade, there was a fundamental alteration in the primary movement pattern of these children. They went so from- So you know, just to clarify that. Split. So just to clarify, you're saying that kids in kindergarten are fine. They come into first grade and when half a year, they see these orthopedic or they see these movement changes in kids at that age? That's right. That's crazy. That's what we're 
that's what we observed. And that, that has also been our experience in, in all the conversations we've had. So um, with, with therapists, with young coaches and, you know, and what we saw was that, man, we had these little developing kids, you know, in this constrained environment. And what we were getting was normal expressions of that, that system. And, you know, what we thought was, you know, we had some friends, um, you know, we, we, we thought, you know, we think that more movement for children in their brain development and in cognitive development and skills was going to be better. That was our hypothesis. And then we look around and say, well, how can we, you know, set up an environment to have the same level of choice? How do we give kids movement choices? And what we saw was that putting kids in dynamic standing stations where they could sit on the ground, where they could put their foot up, they could perch, they could, they could, you know, they could wiggle. What we saw was, hey, this may be, may be a silver bullet. And then some of our research friends at, at, in Texas saw that, boy, they were able to reverse, you know, BMI tracking, which is, you know, pretty good. And they were able to reverse sort of this obesity, you know, tracking metric over a couple of years by just giving kids the option to move more and get out of the sedentariness. So we went to our principal and said, hey, we, we have this hypothesis. You know, we, we love to chew it. And she's like, oh, it makes intuitive sense. We're always talking about the, the dynamic classroom and teachers are trying to teach more movement and PE has gone away and let's do it. So we flipped a couple of classes and then we came along and the rest of the, at the mid-year, we flipped the rest of the classes. We had about 500 kids and that was seven years ago and, um, or eight years ago. And for example, my oldest, my youngest daughter is now in middle school and some of her classes have been converted, but she had never sat at a desk her whole life until this moment. And what we saw was that the chief complaint was that, that teachers were getting through their curricula faster than they normally would and they were having to generate more lesson plans because they were so efficient so that was the big negative that the teachers were having to teach more and what we saw was that it wasn't disruptive that kids had autonomy and choice and that the environment fit individually and if you have children and you see a fifth grader there are some fifth graders who are six feet tall and there are some fifth graders who are three feet tall and they're at the same desk the same chair so what we again just tried to do is say hey can we take our thinking and apply it to a different environment. And, uh, you know, that spread, we had about 90,000 kids now across the United States, usually in Title I schools, are having this movement choice. We partnered with Michelle Obama's Let's Move initiative. Um, and now we've just launched some original research with Cal Berkeley around following some kids and looking at really some, some physical metrics to see if this can be and should be part of a national NIH directive to change how we think about the environment because kids are, are at home and they're maybe not moving as much and we're not walking as much. So something has changed in our environment. And what we think is, hey, this may be a, a component to a more robust workplace. So this is so impressive. And, and coming from the uh, you know physical therapy world myself and understanding that, it's a pretty easy sell. But I, I'm just intrigued how you go into what I would consider bureaucratic uh, school systems and teachers unions and, and uh, school administrations and, and all this, and, and, and how you get that message to, uh, to, get, to get them to convert, um, you know, just because it's, it's not the way it's always been done. So I'm just intrigued on how you, how you, pulled, how you got them to pull the trigger. It's impressive. <laughs> Well, I tell you, um, there are a couple of really great books. One is called Raising Cain, which is looking at the differences between boys and girls around, you know, achievement in school, um, weapons of mass instruction, looking at sort of how we come to inherit these traditional models of sitting. 
you know, British hegemony, trying to create clerks, being able to, you know, focus. And so, you know, thinking sort of critically around, you know, workplace design, and there was a conscious change. Suddenly we were seeing all the tech industry in San Francisco trying to create more flexible work environments, sitting and standing. And, and remember, you know, if you're, if you're sitting or you're standing still all day long, that's, that's a problem. If you're sitting still all day long, that's a problem. The goal is to try to create more movement. And suddenly, because of, you know, our work and, you know, here's an example. One of the things that we know at one of the highest branches of the military, which is the, probably the most elite, which I know you've heard of, um, they often have their, their warfighters and tactical athletes have sleep problems. They have sleep latency issues. They have quality sleep. And one of the first things they started to do was to track how much non-exercise activity they were getting in the day. Right. This is mechanotransduction. This is decongestion. This is whatever you want to talk about. And what they realized is when they ramped the prescription up to try to walk or move and take 12,000 steps a day, they saw a huge decrease in sleep latency and, and improvements in sleep quality. And so the first way that they were to, able to improve behavior in their warfighters was to get them to move more. And that should fit exactly what we should be talking about. NFL's play 60, play 90, right? All of the actual state and national recommendations for aerobic exercise in a week, which most of our schools are not getting. So we came out of this performance and said, hey, look, you're not decongesting enough. We need to walk more to so you can sleep more. Add that in, we start to layer these books on, the research around it. But more importantly, we recognize that the, the functional unit of change is the classroom. And that's a, that's a teacher-driven piece. So we never, ever come into a school and mandate down. Teachers always have a chance to opt in. And it's the, 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 the choice of the teacher to want to change her or his environment that matters the most. And so some, you know, to date, we've had some teachers who have been like, I don't know, but I'm going along. And then they come up to us afterwards. And they're like, wow, this changed my life. My back doesn't hurt. My, my kids are engaged. And, you know, we just flipped a school up here last uh, winter, last January. It's called Martin Luther King Bayshore Elementary School. And it's a kindergarten through eighth school at a 80% obesity uh, rate and a 20% achievement rate. And these kids, most of the kids there are food insecure and, you know, get two meals a day at the school. And when you hear the kids talk about how their environmental interaction has changed how they perceive school, I mean, they don't fall asleep on their desks, they're more engaged, they get better test scores, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, the next step then is to say, hey, we think this works. We've done enough test retests. We have enough subjective experience and data. And then there's some pilot studies in Texas have been excellent then let's explore why it works and and can we understand the mechanisms and that's good research so to answer your original question how does this come back well we're physical therapists we are in the business of human function and human capacity human potential and all we have to do is take the training that we have which sets us up to be the best healthcare providers in the world and apply our thinking to just disparate and new sort of communities and environments. And that is a recipe for making physical therapy the, the crown jewel of, of the medical profession. Well, I applaud you. I think that is just so impressive. And you, I know that you have a foundation that raises money to help fund uh, some of these stand-up desks into uh, school districts. And uh, um, like I said, I'm just real impressed. So I, I, I wish you all the best of luck to keep that going and hopefully uh, uh, we'll, more people. Hopefully the listen. research... Yeah, right. It's yeah. Uh, it's not just a gimmick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then you take it to the business world. I mean, it's uh, you know that uh, standing stand up desks have also been associated with significant improvements in executive function and, and working memory. Uh, 
capabilities and adults. And so I think it, it goes beyond that as well. I, I, I think back on uh, Steve Jobs was never the um, the model for uh, great fitness, but he always had the uh, you knew that if you went to him, he would have a walk talk with you. So when you would talk, when you came into a meeting, he would often say, "Well, let's walk about it." And so they'd go outside and and have their meeting as they're walking around the campus. You know, little things like that they do make a difference. And and I had yeah. you know stand up desks. Uh, we we did that in our administrative offices in the company I was the CEO for. And you can't, I can't tell you how many people came up and said, thank you so much for providing that for us. It's just, it just really meant a lot to them that we, we looked at that aspect of their lives and, and tried to make a difference. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. And, um, you know, if you pan, pan back for a second, you know, the, the newest research is that when you and I went to high school, the chances of us being diabetic were one in 4,000. And now independent of socioeconomic status, independent of race or class, you are chances of being diabetic as a child now in elementary school is one in four. And if you're a Latino, Latinx male, it's, it's two out of three. And if you're an African-American woman, it's two out of three. And so, you know, it's, we're going to have to think about how we're, we are interacting in the world. And some of us are fortunate enough that we interact in enough disparate communities, you know, and man, if you want to, I just was on the phone with NYPD and talking about the number of sort of retirements and disability for hip dysfunction and lumbar disease from wearing the belts and wearing the body armor sitting in a, in a car. You know, we, I think we have enough data. I get to work with a lot of pilots whose necks and hands go numb and low backs go numb and, you know, batter and blow changes from their, their posture and their the pressures on the posture. And, and um, you know, it, at some point we have enough data where we can say, Hey, look, this, we're seeing bigger patterns emerge here. Let's begin conversations about controlling what we can control at the very least. Now, you work with everyone from, as you just mentioned, uh, New York Police Department uh, uh, people to very high elite athletes that are just uh, freaks of, of nature is what they can do. So how do you change your coaching or mentoring depending on what high-level athlete or what type of person you're working with when you're considering egos and, and attitudes that are at play? Well, what's really interesting is that if, you know, at the heart of what is a physical, good physical therapy practice is being able to teach as many different people as come in. And one of my early strength and conditioning mentors um, is a high level Olympic lifting coach. And he has children who have been Olympians and I remember that he was also, when I first met him, he was a high school teacher. He taught every kid in his school in order to pass their school, you had to learn the tenets of Olympic lifting. And he, he started with a, with a PVC pipe because every child can move a PVC pipe. And he was able to break his teaching down to the simplest kid-related terms. And yet in the afternoon, I would be able to watch him coach and work with Olympians at this high level. And what I began early on to recognize, even in our physical therapy education, was that you were responsible for being able to talk to children and talk to geriatric populations and talk to people with spinal cord injuries. And if you couldn't bridge those things, if you weren't a savage generalist, then you were an incomplete provider. So underneath the technical aspects of those things is the ability to communicate that. And those skills, you know, I've owned my gym now for almost 15 years and the number of athlete sessions and the diversity within my class 
is in any given day, you know, is, is, is amazing from, you know, English who are people who are speaking English as a second language to visitors, to people with complex orthopedic problems. And so I think being a good physio means that you can talk up and talk down very quickly or talk sideways or change your affect or your personality and read the room. And some of that is, is the skill of being able to be interact with people interpersonally and be able to have trust and buy-in and belief effects and all of that. It matters. It matters as much that therapeutic relationship which we spend so much time teaching and nurturing is the same coaching relationship that my high-level coaches are experts at, then I really think you have to be technical enough to be able to handle the scope and practice and exposure of human beings across cohorts, across ages, across demographics. I mean, that is the goal and the promise of being a good physical therapist. So with all the things you're involved with and all these uh, uh, great ideas you have stirring around in your head and all the people that want your time, uh, how do you manage it all? What uh, you know, uh, I I think you said it earlier, and I don't think of my you know work life balance as different. I think it's the same. But but how do you manage it all, and how do you decide that where you're putting your energies is the best use of your or the highest level of your skill? I think everyone can relate to that question. I think that is um, you know. I know a lot. I mean, we're, we are right plump next door to a, an incredible physical therapy practice called Presidio Sport and Med, which is traditional physical therapy practice that we have great interactions. We send people back and forth, you know, between us. And, um, you know, I, I see how hard the physios are working in there and I know how hard my staff is working. And, you know, the, for us, for my wife and I, especially as entrepreneurs, when you can work 24 hours a day is we are fortunate that our children stop us. They slow us down. We have to be present. And, you know, um, my brother-in-law is a really well-known architect in LA and until recently he hasn't had a child. And so he would get to work early and work all day, but he didn't have sort of boundaries to his work. So, you know, if I've got to pick my kid up, I've got to get all this work done before the you know, time to pick my kid up. And so on one hand, I'm very lucky that my family really creates boundaries for me and that my wife and I get to work together. But I'll tell you that a few years ago, we were burned out, you know, like six years ago, it was grim, traveling, teaching, starting a business. And we refocused and we really started to think one thing, does this get our family closer together and more time together or less time together? And that running everything through that filter really made a difference for us. And, um, you know, eventually when you start out, you have to say yes to everyone. And the number of times where I would get in late from teaching and be in the gym at 530 in the morning, I slept on my, my plinth in my office, you know, that that's what it was required. Now, you know, you, you definitely have to have a calendar. You have to stick to your calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. But most important, you know, my wife is the key to my success and happiness. And we have something we call the feelings meeting. And every Wednesday we go out on a date, even if it's just two hours and, you know, we talk about our feelings and we sort of have this feedback loop where we of brutal honesty and caring and is this working and, you know, are we stoked? And, you know, I think that has really made a big difference. And then we've also developed a physical practice. And I think the, the physio entrepreneurs who are listening or any entrepreneurs listening can appreciate that it's easy to get to the end of the day and realize there's nothing left in your cup. And that if you want to be sustainable, then you're going to have to eat, you're going to have to sleep, you're going to have to guard those things, and you're going to have to have a, a practice where you can downregulate. You're going to have to talk about stress. You're going to have to maybe have a, a meditation or breathing practice. We have a sauna 
that, you know, if you're super stressed out and go sit in the sauna for 20 minutes late at night, I guarantee you, you cannot be stressed out. It's so hot in there. And, you know, trying to create, you know, and protect our first principles. I would say that Julia and I do a really good job of walking and moving in the day and protecting our sleep and eating as many vegetables in the day as we can. And when we hit those things, we think, okay, that's our, that's our physical practice for the day. Anything on top of that is going to be, you know, gravy. And at some point, something's got to give, you know, my, when we were writing the book, we're in the gym and and teaching. And my wife was like, my mother-in-law is like, I'm not sure you can have friends right now. And uh, I was like, I could have it all. You don't understand. And she was right. I mean, you, you know, there's just going to be times where you run out of time and space and you're going to have to figure out what's important. And what I'll tell you is not optional is your self-care is, is getting some sleep and protecting that sleep so that you can actually be functional the next day and, and redline the whole day and then hit the brakes. Yeah, no, that's great advice. So usually at this time of the interview, Kelly, we uh, always ask uh, our, uh, I always ask my guests, uh, what's a pearl of wisdom? So what can you leave us with today that's a pearl of wisdom that our listeners should hear? Uh, let me just throw it back to Jay-Z because this has really been helpful for me is that uh, I think Oprah asked Jay-Z, you know, what's the definition of excellence? And she said, and he said, performing at a high level for a long time. And he's like, do not confuse that for being hot because we see a lot of people get hot. They get hot and popular and they got, and that is not the same thing as building bridges and being stable and, and, and adopting sustainable practices and, and, you know, we will only know how good we are in a decade and two decades and three decades. And so that really comes back to one of the, I think, the most important tenets, which is we're like, hey, be consistent. Don't be heroic. And we tell that to our athletes. We tell that to our patients. We tell that to our kids. And that consistency over the over the long haul is a so much better model than trying to smash yourself you know, in, in the short haul. So don't be heroic, be consistent. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, Kelly, uh, oftentimes people ask me, well, why do you do these podcasts? And, and my go-to answer is because every time I do one, I learn a lot. And I have certainly learned a lot today. Uh, you're amazing of what you've been able to create. Um, I'm a fan. I, I, I love hearing what you're doing. Stand-up Kids is just so impressive to me. And the, and the level of, of people that, that you work with and how you've made a difference in their lives is impressive. So thanks so much for the interview today. I, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, rubbing elbows with you more in the future as well. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To hear the entire series of interviews, search iTunes and many other platforms for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. To view videos of some of these interviews, search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also visit my website, orange.coaching.com, that is orange with the word dot coaching.com, and go to the Media Center, where all episodes of the podcast and video interviews are available. Music.